final episode, season nine on mental health embodiment. And in this episode, we throw in DEI as well. Hi, friends. My name is Ro Hattie, and I am coming at you from Treaty 7 Territory in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. This is episode 67, the final episode of season nine. Don't forget to rate, review this podcast. It helps a lot. Find all of the folks that have been guests on social media, including myself. You can find me at Rohadi, R-O-H-A-D-I. Next season will be a season on authors. Another season on authors. Why not? But this episode, to wrap things up, it's exciting. It's another special episode. Inkem and Defo comes to us from Lumos Transforms, an organization that is birthed to work with organizations, individuals. They have a ton of resources on their website, lumostransforms.com. It's a way to embody change, unlock potential, transform our world. This conversation covers a lot of ground, as most one-hour conversations do, and I am particularly thankful for Inkem because this is a challenging conversation for me. Many of you know that in a past life, I was a church planter and went through all of the different pieces of trying to change aspects of the church, the church institution from within. And what has come out of that and how I have come out of that is in a state where I would prefer to put my energies in creating the new thing rather than sticking around and trying to change the beast or the vessel, the ship that just won't turn. If institutions don't want to change, let them be, is what I used to always say. But now I have to think about it. After this conversation, it's true that if we want to see systemic change and let's be frank, widespread change, Institutions and working with power holders is one of the crucial ways to get to the final objective, or perhaps not the final one, that sees all bodies, even those on the margins, perhaps those on the margins first, the place and space and state to be whole. That's it from me on this intro. Let's dive into the conversation with Inkem and Defo. And Ken, welcome to the Faith in the Fresh Vibe podcast. I welcome you here and I'm ready to learn all things pertaining to resiliency, reclamation of resiliency, embodiment, change management, all the things. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited by the prospect of this juicy conversation. Juicy is the operative word. I love it. Um, the very first question that I ask guests who cross through this show is to name the traditional lands on which they are situated. So, Inkem, where are you right now? I am currently an uninvited guest on the unceded lands of the Tongong, Tong, Tong, excuse me, of the Tongva people, also known as Tovangar. Los Angeles. Los Angeles. So okay. <laughs> So, yes, yes. <laughs> We're going to dive straight into your work. Before we do that, maybe offer just a brief summary of the work. And, and you have many different places where you offer expertise, but you also have a practice. Uh, if you could Give us a snapshot of your practice, but then follow it up with why. Why do the things that you are doing and why is it giving you life? Ooh, juicy. Can I sum it up? Because I'm a person of, um, I like the big picture and I like the details um, and I love process and I'm interested in impact and I'm interested mm. in relationality and the people. So it's big and hard to describe. I think of late, I've been calling myself a liberatory change alchemist. 
but not the kind of alchemy, you know, sometimes alchemy, I think of it's like metallic and it has a mm-hmm. tank in your mouth. This is the kind that has like blood and soil. It's very organic mm-hmm. alchemy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested in if I could, how we come home to ourselves individually and collectively how we are in right relationship with one another and how we get free together. This is what I'm interested in. Um, And so this is the driver. And there's so many different ways that that can manifest, express um, both challenges and successes and juicy places to discuss and grow and learn. Um, So there's many different places, but that at its heart is how do we, I think, become more human together? Free humans, yeah. Hmm. In what manner does Lumos, or perhaps you were describing all of Lumos mm-hmm. uh, and its potential to be part of transformation? Well, I mean, I when I named Luma, my organization Lumos Transforms, you know, this was pre-J.K. Rowling showing some not some nice mm-hmm. behaviors and attitudes. Um, Lumos from the Harry Potter series is the spell that lights the wand, and the assumption is, is that everyone has a wand, right? And so for some reason, it's dimmed. It's lost its sense of power, its agency, and so this idea of um, letting that light that light that intrinsic light be reignited in folks um and that that's something transformative in that in that process and so with an organization we collectively can do definitely more than than i can do individually and i'm interested i mean i think many years ago i was working with my mentor and they had me say like what is my vision and my vision is like a world where we don't have to be so resilient because it's nourishing and um, equitable and um, sustainable, like all of the good and wonderful things. And my mentor asked me, is what you're doing going to get to that vision? I said, absolutely not. <laughs> and mm. so hence, you know, needing a collective of people with a shared vision to work towards that to play mm. towards that, not just work and struggle, but to play into that, to experiment in, um, as my good friend from Healing Justice London says, uh, rehearse the freedoms that we want to experience in many different contexts. So, mm. rehearse we the freedoms. Uh-huh. We work with organizations, we work with individuals, we work with communities, we play alongside, learn alongside whether we're doing capacity building, skill shares, um, strategic planning, um, practicing, testing, evaluating, and all different kinds of ways. We're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here, but part of the work that you do offer is DEI, isn't it? And from the sounds of your approach, um, and uh, the approach of the organization that there there is a re- reciprocity and collaboration in the work that you are doing, rather than a you know typical data dump or here's the information you know take it maybe you absorb it. It sounds uh, yeah far more collaborative. We can, the process is super important. And so if we're interested in equitable outcomes, I imagine in equity, there's some reciprocity and some, um, as hierarchies are flattened, that we want collaboration. You know, so many places where we will in, or I see folks invite in diversity because either it's for the optics mm-hmm. or sometimes mm-hmm. it's because they feel like this is the right thing to do and we haven't done it. But then there's the reluctance to say, so you've invited the diversity of whatever it is, gender, race, ethnicity, whatever the ability, whatever the diversity is that you've invited. Now is the question, how are you working with that diversity? Do you expect that diversity to um, assimilate into your dominant, whatever Mm -hmm. dominant culture you have? Mm -hmm. 
it was just window dressing. And mm-hmm. so that moment of uh, integration and synergy and collaboration is something I think is very interesting because with that diversity is really, I think, where we find so many answers to hard questions and new ways of relating to each other, one another, that are indeed more equitable. And it will only be born out of collaborations. So when I'm doing traditional diversity, equity, inclusion work, I couldn't imagine doing it any other way than in a collaborative way. Because I don't know how else we could build the what we're looking for without the mm-hmm. collaboration from the beginning. It feels like even before you would you would start work like that, like, like DEI work, that the the prerequisite is work tied to how to even be collaborative. And I was just absorbing as you as you were sharing how through my lens, I think pr- predominantly through the lens of the church and those institutions, and how there's a distinct lack of competency and perhaps that's how institutions are built to keep things to say well that is how they were built that there is no skill around collaboration that the demand in very segregated spaces is assimilate as i say we don't and we wouldn't even know how to collaborate i think we build institutions as bulwarks against the unknown mm. yes so when I invite in diversity, I'm inviting in the other, which is I'm inviting in the unknown. The thing that I built the institution to hold off. Yes. Yeah. To control, to manage. And suddenly now it's in my midst. So here I am, shoulders up, arms crossed, right? Trying to disarm myself to embrace the exact thing that is, you know, what I've been trying to control or hold off. And no one really talks about it that way. How do we recognize how hard that is? Because we just chastise people. It's hard, but you should do it because it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Well, it can be the right thing to do. It could be something someone really wants. and But if we don't acknowledge the hardness, we don't actually resource people to be able to do it. We just say, do it through force of will. Force of will is probably one of the weakest resources we have Mm. because we will push and push and override. And when we feel scared or uncomfortable, um, that will trigger, you know, primitive defense responses that will come up and hijack that force of will. And so we wonder like, oh, look, they weren't really committed. It's because we were tapping the wrong resource for people to push through. Um, so, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know, this is a far ranging conversation, which I personally love, but I think about, I'm trained as a, you know, a medical, I'm a nurse midwife. And so that was a lot of training. And even though midwifery is not mainstream in the West, in many places, especially in, um, North America, um, in, you know, European kind of mode, it's very medical obstetrical, but I still have some very traditional training. And that as I was exposed to things like homeopathy, for example, and I remember seeing evidence of it working, and I said, oh my goodness, then this means, once I under- I saw the evidence of the, the impact, but I didn't understand the why. And when I researched how homeopathy works, I said, this can't be true because everything else I know and I've been trained as true, and they are at cross purposes. And so I was sat in this real moment of cognitive dissonance for truly a couple of years about, do I reject what I've seen? Do I reject what I've been taught? How do I reconcile them? And I had a lot of realizing how hard this was for me. And so when I see when people's worldview, you're in an institution that you have built in a certain mode a certain model, and that's your way of understanding the world, and somebody comes in with a diverse perspective, how that can be deeply threatening. And how do we hold with gentle humanity people through the process of the undoing of the way they understand the world working? Mm. And to allow truly welcome in diversity 
as a prerequisite for collaboration. And I don't think we give that process enough due because we do it in our heads. We don't acknowledge the body process of what this confused state is. I really value you naming the, the, the depths of, of existing for, for institutions and those within it and, the difficulty of li- existing in potential liminal spaces of the in-between of keeping things the same and then ushering in change you know, onto something different. Uh, it's easy to get cynical about whether change can even happen to the point you wonder, is it even possible? And then why bother? Why bother? Why bother in, in the shifts? Um, and as you were speaking, because I, I have not always, but posture myself in a space of of I don't want to put in that energy to be a part of seeing that change. I'd rather create the new thing or be a part of creating the new thing. But the tension of that is that will, as I'm figuring out, and I'm a slow learner over 20 years, will posture itself in a place of obscurity probably forever a small obscure like that type of so it lacks like my my approach of oh just do the new thing perhaps it doesn't lack but it's missing perhaps a critical mass behind it uh, a resource behind it more uh, team or collaboration or community even behind it so it's interesting to balance or, or, or see a juxtaposition between New ideas, like truly disruptive new ideas, do come from the margins. They don't come from the center, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yes, um, of course. And yeah. th- by definition, right? If it's disruptive, it's come. It has to come from outside the frame. The question is, what bridges? Where are there bridges? And sometimes we can have something new that's completely disruptive, and it's just like a little blip, and then it does die, like a you know a genetic mutation, right? It's something totally new, and if it doesn't have a bridge, a way to reproduce, it just fizzles out. Will it? Will it come again? Probably, but we tend to see that um, sort of new inventions, like that multiple discovery uh, um, phenomenon, where it so it crops up in several places at the same time. So you, we're not that unique, <laughs> right? It crops up in several places at the same time and sort of reaches critical mass um, from different areas, some, some convergent evolution of, of some kind. Um, but it is interesting, this idea of discovery and, and adoption, because they're different. Mm. They're very different. We can mm-hmm. have ideas, mm-hmm. how are they implementation and adoption of new ideas and spread is a field in and of itself. Like I, it was fascinating when I was doing a, some deep dive research for developing a certification program. And I really went, I thought it's going to take me a couple months to develop this. It ended up being like six months, about 20 hours a week, like really deep dive. Hmm. And so deep dive into the science and history of stress that what we know of as stress as a concept was his, was researched right from a, like a research perspective but it was adopted through a public relations campaign hmm. right that's what caused the to adopt how we think mm-hmm. about okay. us yeah. through a public relations campaign and part of that was also because it was more easily adopted by industry and military hmm. mm. Because we want our soldiers to to be resilient around stress. And so this, right? Mm-hmm. And then it moved into the mainstream. And so it wasn't enough for it to be a good idea or an understanding that worked. It needed people out talking about it, you know, really concerted efforts of writing articles and writing books and very specific to so it is something for those of us who are interested in change, who are interested in a new world, is it's not just what we do; it's how is that shared. Hmm. And in and in this case, an institution was part of of tipping it past 
an early adopter stage into the masses. Curious. So curious. I like you have a very curious mind, just like me. I love it. Like, likewise. Well, let's continue our curiosity. Um, let's shift into resiliency. It's not going to be really a shift here because we were talking about all of these systemic pieces. Uh, I tweeted, which is not particularly unique, not the tweet, but the contents of, I want that privilege where I can thrive without the need to be, quote, resilient along the way. Uh, I use the term resiliency, or I bring it into our conversation here because I was in that tweet, I'm interrogating the uh, cultural, um, we tend to glorify resiliency as a way to overcome systemic injustices or inequalities, particularly around capitalism. Like, look how resilient we are. Well, you know what? I would love to not have to be resilient. Uh, however, within your work, the, there you do use the term resiliency, and you tie resiliency to liberation, resilience for liberation. Okay, so let's let's unpack now, and, and perhaps this is in, in fact a reclamation of resilience. Yes, I mean, I think in some ways it, resilience has been weaponized, and I, as I been teaching and working with people over the many years, um, I've seen a lot of people recoil from the word because it's been weaponized against folks in a very neoliberal context in that we don't acknowledge the system's culpability in creating uh, conditions of adversity. And instead, we look only at the individual and at yeah. that unit, and we say that the individual must be more resilient. You must be stronger, mm. flexible to endure whatever is going on, and that any resilience you build will then be extracted from you for greater production and consumption. Oof, oof. Right? And that's it. And Yikes. so, of course, people yeah. are going to be like, no, thank you. <laughs> I don't want that. However, as I sat and looked at words and, and thinking about, I was very interested at a point, um, and still am, about how I see that trauma is really one of the deepest roots of suffering and problems in, mm. in our world, in that traumatized people are suffering, they inflict that suffering on others, they build traumatizing relationships, organizations, communities, traumatized relationship to the earth is extractive. So all of this trauma, trauma is separating, um, uh, disconnecting in all kinds of ways. And so I, but I realized that many people can't even acknowledge that trauma because it's, they're just so busy surviving and that I needed to say like, what is it that helps people acknowledge and even say the word trauma so that we can even start to talk or imagine solutions and different ways of being and, and around this healing, et cetera. And so I realized resilience had its place. How do we build a resilience where people are stronger and more flexible, not just to become better cogs in the machine, but how to have the creativity, the spaciousness, the, um, connectedness, the vitality to not just dismantle the oppressive machine empire, but to simultaneously envision and build something new. And we can wait. It's really, I feel sad and sometimes quite angry about it. Like I didn't make this. I didn't build empire. I, And yet, Empire is not going to save me. The people who benefit the most from empire are, have not really any motivation in dismantling it. <laughs> and so I can sit and wait to be saved. Hmm. I can be angry and bitter and cynical. Or I can say, yes, it is unfair. 
I'm sad and I'm angry and I'm going to do the work. And I'm going to build and I'm going to do the thing. So that is the latter path that I've taken. And so I, you know, I don't like it, but I do actually need more resilience. Hmm. Hmm. I do. I frankly do not just, you know, um, to heal, to overcome my own personal adversities, to find joy in different places in my life, to be able to rest and to change this damn place. <laughs> you didn't systematize this, and maybe this, this is just where my, my brain went in, in the process in which you help others unlock their resiliency it sounds like there is a stage where stage one comes through and and it is the stage of naming where you were not alert or aware before you are now able to name the systems not merely individuals who are pressing against which is the next stage your capacity to be more whole after naming that resiliency could breed either additional skills to be another cog in the wheel versus the skills to find healing, wholeness, repair, of which then leads to the next stage, which is putting together activities to write a more beautiful story for yourself, but also for those you are connected with. Yeah, I mean, Sounds I do like think a good book. Yeah, I mean, I do think there's a phasing that happens, mm. for sure. And some of these things are recursive. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly not linear. Yeah. No, but it, there are stages. And it's like at the depths, I think if people really, it's like when you talk about climate collapse, when people really name what's happening, they often just freeze, they become so overwhelmed because it is so, it's just too much. There are those who are like, we must name the problem. And if you don't name the problem correctly, if you don't talk about the severity of it, you're sugarcoating it. And I'm like, go ahead, name it that way. And nobody's going to be able to work on it. So in your stridency to be so correct about it, you actually defeat the purpose that you are after. And so where, how do we hold the tensions of naming things accurately enough and mm. resourcing people enough so that they can still be in motion and in conversation in the struggle around those things. So it's a, it's a tight line. I was on a panel for a, um, it was a funding um, sort of how do we fund the great wealth transfer? It was a whole conference on how do we work in philanthropy to, really say like what is happening now and what needs to happen and in this panel there was this discussion talking about climate and the severity of wealth inequality and what we're really you know facing and you could see the audience just start to glaze over and everything that was being said was true but then you want a call to action these people are all paralyzed and so that phasing right is there is a phase of naming and then a phase of building some resources, and then you can name it even more because you can face it more. And then you can just do some dismantling and some envisioning. But as that capacity grows, I think all of those deepen through that whole mm. problem. Maybe we run through it many times. Uh, it doesn't sound like you could you could offer a rubric to a group to to all groups that would be the same. And what I'm saying is you would have to be as either facilitator or um, speaker, have to curate what part of the wrong you're dragging into the light based on, on who you're connecting with. Is that accurate? It's a co-creation. Hmm. It's always going to be a co-creation because we're co-regulating we are in conversation, we are collaborating, we are building this in real time. And so people are, or peoples are in different places and have different strengths and different challenges. And so it's sort of, you know, a little diagnostician about like kind of where we are and where might be the openings and the soft spots here and where might be the tender spots that are too tender to touch right now. But as the 
the strength and um, cohesiveness grows and the trust grows, you can enter into some of that territory. So, you know, I, I think one of the analogies is like, if somebody was doing a gym program, they walk in and you kind of take a look at their body and you know, like, is this person going to be able to bench press this amount of weight? Probably not. Let's try to do some little reps and like, oh, wait, they're really tight here, maybe some stretching. And so you, you know, like a trainer would work with a person and you see what they can do and what they're interested in. Like, I really want to have giant muscles or I really want to be like lean and sinewy and really defined. I want more flexibility. And so with the desires of the person and the, and I'm doing this as an individual, but I think as a collective too, like a collective is, you know, we want to be whatever it is. Like we really, it's maybe a art collective and we really want to have more access to creativity together. I'm always processing through a lens of, of my, of my world or, or my expertise in, of, of church or institutions and challenging what I think are bedrock uh, problems, white supremacy, patriarchy, uh, and then charting as you were sharing. And, and it was filling in, fill, not filling in gaps, but giving uh, a reminder to language of how some groups or folks can name white supremacy and others if you pull all of that into the light right off the bat. It, it's that, it's that freeze and stop. And I'm kind of left holding this sense around when I think of the institutional church, as an example, I don't, I can't think of any in my context where there's been a successful, uh, ushering of change surrounding those pieces, patriarchy, white supremacy. And now my head is turning of, okay, and so where did the wheels fall off the bus in a sense where something went too fast or there was not enough pause or resourcing of the people to, to hold the place that they were at well so they can move on to to in this effect, perhaps more dismantling, um, mm-hmm. to more welcoming the other and, and so forth and so forth. So anyways, that, that's me thinking out loud, connecting the I dots in my context. Um, I love it so much. And I think it's, you know, it's important to, again, where's the, the line on the process. And, and again, we, we feel what often happens is we feel such urgency about these issues around inequity, around exclusion, around oppression. And that urgency will drive up in us a defense response that is characterized by adrenaline, which causes us to be more rigid, more dogmatic, more binary. Uh, we don't hear one another well. We have a sense of um, the urgency, which can collapse our strategic and creative problem solving we become more self-focused all in biology this is all bio- biological and if we're not aware of it we we will put on a cloak of righteousness and not recognize the biological response and how that engenders or uh, inhibits collaboration deep listening the kind of things that are really needed for change and so it's being aware of, and this is something that I work a lot with people who do change, is being aware, are you in a dismantling energy or are you in a building and dreaming energy? And when and you know, when is which one needed and how much of which one is needed? And those are embodied knowledges. You can't, mm. right? And so if I'm not aware of my body and mm. not aware that I'm using clipped speech, that my eyes are darting around, that I'm not listening well, right? If I don't have that embodied knowledge and I'm coming to a, you know, a collaborative meeting, I am at cross purposes to what I'm trying to do here. Even if in my mind I want diversity, what I'm my behavior is not inclusive. And so how do we equip people with that embodied knowledge of where they are in their systems, in their own internal landscape, and how to have the wisdom to discern, is this useful for what I'm trying to do? And if it isn't, 
what are the skills to shift my internal state to match what I'm trying to do here, right? So if I want to be warm and expansive and inclusive, is my nervous system in a warm and expansive, inclusive space? Because I may have ideas about being warm in, you know, expansive and inclusive, but I am not behaving in that way. And so the outcome is going to be people feel railroaded, they feel not listened to, and this defeats what I'm trying to do in this institution. Even, and I'm talking with the best intentions here. We're yeah. not talking with malintentions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. we don't give the grace of enough time. Change takes, like, are we interested in like, oh, great, we have a new policy? Or are you interested in culture shift? Culture shift takes time and a holding of people as they are, because in some ways, the ground under them might be crumbling. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The foundation, the bedrock is rooted in malformed roots. And what do you do with that info? But it seems daunting to me as the light bulbs are going off, and again, I'm holding it within a church uh, space. It doesn't have to be, but uh, it, it seems daunting in that, okay, here's a solution of, of a disembodied people. And culturally, I would say in the West, we tend to be individual, disembodied, ironically, in church spaces where we rely on the incarnate Christ, we're disembodied, that... W- the skills we would, and I say this because I think of my own skills and where I've had to come from, the skills that we would need to build within those change makers or those who would like to see change but don't know how, is we're starting from ground zero. That's like all the work of merely embodiment will come before we even touch aspects of inclusion or diversity or whichever aspect would shift the institution. Do we have time for that? Do we have a choice? The alternative would be it dies. Is that the alternative, the institution? No, no, then we die too. I mean, I don't, Mm. it's not dying, that's for sure. And I I think, look at where there is, where is their strength? So if I look at, um, you know, I did an individual session with an observant Muslim person yesterday and who prays five times a day. And we were talking about embodiment, and much of the prayer is an embo- is an embodied process. How to bring attention to it as an embodied mm. process is different. And so, if we look at some of you know the biggest, you know, fastest growing um, Christian denominations have large embodiment right components, evangelical, um, some of the you know um, processes that happen. I remember teaching an embodiment. Um, course, and somebody said, we did a specific practice that involves a, a mammalian reflex that resets the stress cycle. It's called, I call it the therapeutic tremor. It's a shaking or vibrating that happens in all mammals. When we are coming out of a very stressful or traumatic event, our bodies will vibrate to reset that um, physiologically. And so I was teaching how to turn this on and turn it off and work with this. And a participant, this is many years ago, I'm going to say it's like 12 years ago or so. She said, I'm Pentecostal and this is how I pray. She recognized the Mm -hmm. sensation was part of Mm -hmm. her spiritual religious practice. So I think Mm -hmm. sometimes it's already there. It just needs maybe a different framing to understand and recognize that many, I think, specifically religious and spiritual experiences are embodied experiences. We just don't call them that. And so that people actually maybe have more competencies than we realize, and that those can be built on. That's all. Yeah, so it's a different kind of naming then, which is in many ways an easy win, uh, especially for like a consultant, an easy win of what you are already doing and champion that. And then yeah, recognize it and then draw some, when are we open? When are we closed? What are you? And so it's a conversation. If you're working in, let's say, 
anti-racism, anti-oppression, wanting to be more open and inclusive. So drawing some of the parallels, when do you feel open and when do you feel closed physically? So these conversations are not complicated. It's making space for them uh, together and people begin to, oh, and they start to, you know, because I do think that this is something that most people want in their core. They want connection. They want mm. meaning. They want a sense of belonging. Yes, is really through unhealed um, trauma and conditions of constant stress that people will show an us versus you know them attitude, which to me is a reflection of trauma. Hmm. It is Oof. literally a reflection of trauma. So I enjoy like working in multi-faith spaces because you tend to find folks are like there's a more settledness in the nervous system mm. because of the capacity <laughs> for that. Right? Uh, to connect the dots into, oh, into your nervous system. I want to take a step back mm -hmm. uh, quickly to a, name something that came to my mind, how do we prevent, uh, so moments where we're trying to usher and change in community, be it church institution, it could be anything, but how do we ensure that the burden of, of doing the work doesn't fall to those on the margins? Is that merely a skill thing of, cause often I'll just use church again. It's, probably BIPOC folks, folks who are calling for some manner of diversity in community or acknowledgement or uh, that your body belongs or is okay here. But how is it that we can hold well the space for others to come alongside uh, where they're at to come to the next step, the one step into change? Uh, versus the onus is continuously on bodies on the margins. It's a both and, because the truth is the onus really is on the people who have the most on the line. If you have a lot of privilege, you do not have a lot of motivation to change the system. So it is a sad fact. It is true. Most of it mm. falls with the most marginalized. And this is why we need more resilience, because most of it does fall on us. It is just true. And we can have really good allies. And so while it seems I think I I have seen quite a bit of anger, like the idea of doing resourcing for privileged people, like people mm -hmm. are like, why? They already have yeah. all this stuff. And yeah. What I have to point out, because there's a lot of anger, right? There's a lot of anger on the part of people on the margins to say, people who have all this privilege, why should you resource them with anything more? Send the resources here. Because if we think about resilience exists, it's the other side of the coin of adversity. There's no need, as we started, there's no need for resilience if there's no adversity. So think about privilege. Privilege means you have less adversity. So by definition, you have less resilience. This mm. is why anytime there's mm. privilege, there is fragility. Mm. And if we oh. want to get to the, you know, the North Star, the promised land, wherever it is we're trying to go, yeah. we need everybody on board, which yeah. means those okay. people with privilege actually need to be resourced so that they can have the resilience to do the work alongside us. So it may be frustrating, but it is a necessary step to help them so they don't collapse in white fragility. You don't see the collapse of male fragility, able-bodied, any place, yeah. right? It's how do we build that resilience? So if I might tell a brief story, as I was doing a project with a community college, right? And it was a, it was a, embodied, trauma-informed, resilience-oriented in preparation for this whole institution to take on an anti-racism initiative. And so we had multiracial teachers, uh, you know, part-time faculty, tenured, like everybody, administrators, everybody was in these small groups. And we worked with them over a number of sessions for a total of about 12 hours for each group. And at the end of one group, 
one white woman, cis white woman says, I realized that prior to doing this workshop, that a black person in my life was very, very angry. And I was like, why are you angry like that? It's going to hurt your efforts more than anything. You should be calm. Basically what we would call tone policing. So she admitted mm -hmm. that this is how she felt. She was like, they, you know, they're defeating it. They need to basically this black person needs to be more resilient and present their yeah. whatever their their complaints are or their needs. A, a swage, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And she said, and now I realize that it is me who needs to grow my capacity to sit with their righteous anger. So going from the need to tone police comes out of the fragility. I can't handle your anger. I can't handle your demands. I can't handle it. So I'm going to use my privilege to tell you how to be. But as I am less fragile, I can acknowledge my fragility and my need to grow into partnership with you. So that was the beginning of the capacity building. Clearly this person needed more, but that's what I'm talking about. And so when we say, how do we keep your initial question? How do we keep this from falling on those on the margins is you need to support folks on the margins, but you need to actually resource the people with privilege so that they can have the um, capacity to let go of the tight grip of control that they need to feel safe because they're so fragile. Well, you connected the dots and pieces there. And so appreciative of that to trail off. Would you say that ushering in systemic change in an institution such as a college or university that the steps towards that are reliant on the individuals coming to a space, or each of them coming to a space of their own embodiment and understanding um, to be co-facilitators co of that change? Is that what I is think, required? I think, I mean, this is my, you know, my perspective. I don't think it's the thing. I think it's a mm -hmm. thing that is needed. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's certain other conditions that are also needed and you don't need everybody. Mm. Yeah. There's a tipping point perhaps. Uh, yeah, absolutely. A tipping mm -hmm. point and, and recognizing like where people are in the power structure, both formal and informal, because the formal people, formal power can unlock resources, particularly time and money, but people who may have informal power can unlock social capital in a kind of way. And so you, it's not necessarily, it's the tipping point might not be numerically a percentage of how many people in a in particular institution It's what is their power mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is also important. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do think it's like, we want the systems to change, but people make systems, people maintain them. They push the buttons, they pull the levers. Mm -hmm. And so, <laughs> if we look at it from a practical standpoint, I don't mean to be neoliberal in saying, let's focus on the individual. It's focusing on the individual with an awareness of the ecology. And when the individual starts to shift, they start to, it, one, enforce policy differently, write policy yes. differently, yeah. engage relationally differently. Then the policies start to change and shift, which makes more space around the individual so then the individuals can do another deeper layer of internal transformation which is then reflected in the larger and it's recursive back and forth between individual mm. in, intrapersonal interpersonal systems and yeah. it shades back and forth with more and more spaciousness hmm. at each level well you're advocating a, a, a rhythm and then adoption of a rhythm for an organization to to be meandering their way onto deeper uh, levels of shift. And you're still doing the thing, right? So if it's a church, you're still, you know, churches do a lot of like social activities, social good, you know, um, ministering and all of this. It's not like you can suddenly say, okay, we're going to stop. We're not ministering to the sick. We're not caring for, you know, we're not doing any of that. 
while we do this change, you still have to be a functional organization for whatever it is that you're doing in the world, Mm. in spirit and the world, and doing the change simultaneously. I think Mm. that's important. Uh, the the word that stuck with me as as you were sharing around policy shifts of, of of what is like let's be pragmatic of of how we usher in and see change happen is is the word ecology and and how you there's a shrewdness almost and perhaps an expertise but knowing the ecology of an organization or or a uh, person an institution um, a political party even. And who are the power holders in that ecology to begin to shift? That's like, uh, not only is that strategic, that, that's like answers to the test of how we, we, we could bring in uh, change faster uh, in many ways. I mean, it, it was change is always happening. Mm. It's always, it is the only constant. It is always happening. It's a question of, can we put our, you know, fingers a little bit and guide it. Well, yeah, somebody's fingers are guiding it. Yeah. So do you want your fingers also there? Mm. <laughs> your embodied fingers. Mm-hmm. Something to that effect. Mm-hmm. That one won't go on a t-shirt, but. Yeah. Little hot dog fingers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there they are. Yeah. Good, good uh, movie reference. Mm-hmm. Um, our time is done. Thank you so much. Did you want to do any shout outs, uh, to your work, uh, where folks can find you, um, best ways to connect with you and follow you? Two things. I think our time is just starting. I don't think it's done. So I'm going to say that. Oh, that's wonderful. I hope we can have another conversation. Yes. Um, yeah, so I'm with Lumos Transforms, and so we're on all the usual platforms, Instagram, Twitter, or what it's called now, I think, yeah. X or whatever it is, whatever. Um, and yeah. the meta, um, <laughs> Facebook, and and just the regular web. But we one thing that is important is accessibility for our offerings. To So we do, a bulk of our work is with, you know, organizations, but we're really committed to offering um free and low cost access to what I call is the resilience toolkit, which is much mm-hmm. of what I've been talking about is a perspective on um, learning how to do these things, learning how to have this self-awareness, how to have the discernment of what states we're in, what are skills that we can use, tools we can use to settle responses in ourselves so that we can be expansive and generative and connected and inclusive and so that those are you can find those on our website resilience for liberation resilience toolkit all that stuff so thank you well this ends season nine on embodiment and mental health a little bit of change management thrown in. Thanks for being here, friends. Don't forget to review this podcast or leave a rating. Don't forget to find all the books of the folks that we've heard from. Share it with your friends and stay tuned. Season 10 with authors is up next.